The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8 through chapter 6, verse 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats a little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone who also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with a joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Now we are studying the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Last week was an important week for us. We saw that the Sunday gathering is meant to be about God and not about us. And so when we come here, we come to study God's word. We come to listen to God speak. And I pray that he's going to do that through this text this morning. Um, but it's going to be difficult, all right? It's, it's going to be hard work for us. It's going to be real. Actually, I'm just going to say it's a lot harder work for me, okay? Um, this is a long text. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he was, in his introduction to um, 
Athanasius's book on the inc- uh, on the incarnation, or on, yeah, he he wrote. Um, it's my advice that anytime a person reads a go- a new book, they should follow it up by reading an old book. And he makes this argument in this case that no matter if you're on, I'm going to use it politically, this illustration politically. No matter if you're on the left or you're on the right politically. You can be arguing at the other one, and, are, and you can be completely opposed to each other. But what you don't realize is people in a generation share the same underlying presuppositions about life. Okay? And so he says, if you want to be wise, read an old dead guy or gal, then read a new book. Because the old dead guy, and the old, they have different presuppositions from an older generation. And so they might not have the same viewpoint that you're going to have. And it helps you be a more well-rounded. This is why schools used to read the classics, right? I won't get in that too much right now. But here's the idea. We are all, no matter how you, where you're at politically, no matter if you consider yourself conservative or liberal or whatever, no matter what background you've had, we're all swimming in the same cultural waters, and therefore it's very hard for us to see our own, the foundations of what we believe, our own presuppositions, things that we don't even think about, all right? And so we are going back, and we're, we're, we're studying this guy who lived, lived about 3,000 years ago, really old book, and He's shattering some of our presuppositions, okay? And it's important for us to read this. And this is one of these texts today that it's going against the chief American God, okay? And so I know that somewhere in your gut, you don't want to hear what I'm going to say today, okay? Somewhere in my gut, actually my whole gut, I don't want to preach what I got to preach today. Right? I don't enjoy talking about this. This has been really hard. This has been a really difficult week. And Solomon, but Solomon just says, hey, I want, you to, I want you to see what the good life really is. It's not what the American society says. That's what he would say to us. To these guys, he's saying this, this secular Jewish life that you think you're going to live and find happiness and find joy and find satisfaction, it's a figment of your imagination. You'll never find success. You'll never find satisfaction. You'll never find joy there. Okay? He's pushing against it, all right? And he's pushing against our God this morning, the God of success, the God of wealth, the God of money. And I didn't want to preach it until now. Now I feel the Holy Spirit, so let's, let's pray and let's get this thing going. Father, I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your help. I thank you for your word. I thank you for giving us your word that can... Turn a light on in our mind that can give us direction in the midst of a culture that's obsessed with success and wealth. And even in the church is obsessed with success and wealth. Would you lead us to the good life? Would you lead us to yourself today? Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would you help us hear your word this morning? In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, I got a slide here. This, this, is a, this is why this, one of the reasons this passage is so difficult. I talked a few weeks ago that Ecclesiastes is like an ancient form of poetry or wisdom literature. And they are, there are different techniques used when you're writing poetry to get somebody's attention, to help them see the point. 
Uh, my neighbor, is, is, he's got a PhD. He loves uh, poetry. We read poetry together. I have no idea what it means. I sit down with him. He tells me, I, that's amazing. I didn't see that at all, right? Well, this is the same thing. Please put that slide up there. This is called a Hebrew, here we go, a Hebrew chiasm. What? Chiasm. This is how, what's going on today. You wouldn't pick it up unless you're, an, you know, a theologian or you're good at Hebrew poetry. Okay, you can see on the bottom, this is my first point today, okay? Chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. But what's interesting is the author is, he has it basically, he shows a negative point. He shows it, then he goes to 2a, shows a negative point. But 3a is the mean, the, the, the meat of the passage. 3a is his, whole, is his summit, okay? But then 2b, he's saying the same thing he said in 2a. And in 1b, he's saying the same thing he said in 1a. So he's making a point. This is like a sandwich, okay? Right? The point is the meat in the middle, all right? That's what he's doing. Now, we're linear thinkers. We're Western thinkers. We want to read a book, and at the end of the chapter, that's where the point is made, right? Work through it, point made, move on. Well, that's not how this, is, this uh, chiasm works in Hebrew literature. The point is actually in the middle. So that's why we're taking chapters 5, verses 8 to 6, 9, and we're going to study the culmination there that's in the middle. Okay, so 1A. Now, as I was studying this, I don't know why. I don't like classic rock, but the Rolling Stones was in my head, okay? And so point 1A is I can't get no satisfaction by pursuing wealth, okay? That's what he's talking about. He's going to make the same point in point B. 2A, I can't enjoy my life today by pursuing wealth. And then the main theme of the passage is I can. So you see, I can't, I can't, I can. I can find satisfaction and enjoyment by pursuing and enjoying God and his gifts. Now, you can take that off the screen. This book is written by a guy named Solomon. It's about life under the sun. Okay, and it's been a trip up until now, right? And now he's saying, here's one of the things that people chase under the sun. They chase wealth. Let's look at chapter 5, verses 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. What's he saying here? I didn't get this. I didn't understand this when I first was reading it because it's like you're going to look at your, your culture, you're going to look at your cities, and you're gonna, there's going to be injustice out there. Don't be amazed at the matter because there's somebody else above them watching them. Well, I didn't understand that. It sounded like someone was watching them. That should be a good thing. But no, this is a Hebrew phrase of the rich look out for the rich. The wealthy look out for the wealthy, they aren't concerned with the poor or creating a good and just society. They simply want to line their pockets with wealth. So he's building this, people who pursue wealth not, aren't necessarily just. Let's, keep, let's look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves his wealth with his income. This is vanity. You know, 
you've ever been, if you've been in your career very long and you got to go before the boss and get to ask for a raise, you had to argue and prove why you deserve it, and then you got it, that next paycheck is so sweet. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden it's like, well, that was nice. When can I ask for another one? Right? We're satisfied for a week or two in our, in our uh, raise, but then all of a sudden in the back of our mind, oh, do I have to wait a year to ask for another one? Do I have to go two? How long do I have to be? Solomon says, he who loves money will never be satisfied with it. He who chases wealth will never be satisfied. Now, it's interesting. Um, Rockefeller was at one point the richest man in the world. He was America's first ever billionaire. Um, And considering he was a billionaire in the early 1900s, he's still considered as the richest person in modern history. And when a reporter asked him, how much money is enough? He responded, just a little bit more. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 14 says that Solomon, the guy who wrote this book, his annual salary, this is not including any of his other business ventures, was 666 talents of gold. Had to, had to get on Google this week. One talent is 75 pounds of gold. Gold today is going for about $18,875 a pound. You multiply that by 75, you multiply that by 666, you get an annual salary in gold in today's economy of $942,795,261. Solomon reigned for 40 years. That means Solomon had earned somewhere between 37 and $38 billion, and that's a very conservative estimate. I read in one commentary that said, in today's dollars, Solomon would have been, had a net worth of $2.1 trillion. Solomon, his wealth exceeded Rockefeller's by two or three times, and he says money and wealth will never satisfy you. Verse 11, when goods increase, so when the money's coming in, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Take it from Solomon, the more money you make, the more people show up to help you spend it. You need a maid to clean your house, a gardener to mow your grass, a maintenance man to keep up your house, an accountant to keep track of your money, a nanny to watch over your kids, a broker to invest your money, and a security team to protect you and your possessions. The more money you make, the more money you have to spend to keep it safe. Not only that, but friends and long-lost family members can't come out of the woodwork to asking you for a, a little helping hand. There's a thing called the curse of the lottery. You can Google it and look it up. But for many people, winning the lottery, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, ruins their life because of this. See, getting wealth, getting a lot of money, often adds a great deal of stress to your life. It becomes hard to realize who is in your life because you're paying them and who is in your life because they love you. 
Solomon contrasts that with the laborer who works hard, eats simply, and sleeps well. Look at verse 11 or verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats a little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let them sleep. Now that's point 1A. Now we're going to go to point 1B, and that's in chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. I know it's kind of weird, but we've got to jump there to make sense of things. Chapter 6, 7 to 9. It says this, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite, see there it is again, is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. We work to eat, and yet after we do, we're hungry again. The same is true of riches and wealth. We work in order to consume And we then consume our wealth through purchasing, possessions, experiences, and services only to discover that now we'll need to work harder so that in the future we can consume some more. We go on a vacation. It's an amazing vacation. And what's the next thing we say? We need to do this every year. Well, I just, that means I have to work that hard and raise that money and do this every year. Point one from Solomon, our appetite for wealth is never satisfied. No one pushes back from the table and says, you know what? That's enough money. Just start giving it away. The stronger the money addiction, the larger the hole in the human heart. Solomon's second point is, so the first one, You'll never, get, you'll never be satisfied by chasing wealth or riches. And the second point, you can't enjoy your life today by pursuing wealth. Again, he's got one point with two sets of illustrations. We're going to look at 5, 13 through 17. There is a grievous evil. Hmm. Solomon starts this section by saying there is a grievous evil. That word grievous means exhausting. It means to grow tired, to be worn out. Solomon is saying the person who pursues wealth will be exhausted at trying to gain it and trying to keep from losing it. It's so confusing when you're chasing wealth because you're simultaneously trying to spend it and trying to save it and trying to keep others from taking it. He or she will be worried by how much is in the 401k and with the other hand will be spending it. But look what he says. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. It's life away from God. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. He's saying here that there's a way to hoard riches, to keep riches, Think of it. There's a reason why in all the tales that a dragon sits over his wealth, right? There's even a sense where you become like that dragon as you hoard riches, as you bring riches in, you become dragon-like yourself. Ecclesiastes Solomon says, this is a grievous evil. Keep reading. 
And those riches, here's the other thing, were lost in a bad venture. The sad reality is if you're pursuing wealth, if you're chasing wealth, one bad venture, one poor investment, one crash of the economy, and you can lose it all. You work your whole life for wealth, and now after one bad investment, you've lost it all. What gain did they have from all of their toil? Their whole life spent pursuing something, and now it's all gone. Look what he says. And those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is a father of a son. He's got nothing in his hand, no inheritance to leave because he lost it all. As he came from his, mother womb, his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is an exhausting, a grievous evil. Just as he came into the world, so shall he go. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Look at this. So he wasted his life chasing money. And look at this, verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and in anger. In the Hebrew world, eating was meant to be a social occasion that brings joy. But here we find the exact opposite. This man who spent his whole life chasing money, he ends it eating alone, in darkness, in much vexation, sickness, and anger. He was chasing money, he found it, he lost it, and now his life is in a dark place. In the book Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller writes of the tragic string of suicides that followed the global economic crisis that started in 2008. Quote, he says, the acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the federal home loan mortgage corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief, ex chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who had lost 1.4 billion of his clients' money in Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme slit his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his $600 a night suite in Knightsbridge, London. Solomon, 3,000 years ago, is depicting for us, is warning us of what happens to the life who pursues wealth. It ends in darkness, vexation, and pain. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Solomon goes on in chapter 6, verses 1. Here it is again. There is an evil There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. 
Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. Solomon's second set of examples here are meant to shock us. First, he says that God gives to us whatever it is that we have. What you have right now was given to you from the hand of God. To some he gives a little and to some he gives a lot. God gives wealth, God gives possessions, God gives a measure of honor to all. But look, God does not give the gift of enjoyment to all. Solomon says, God gives to this man everything his heart desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. How strange of a thing that the man with all the money and the power may be less happy than the gardener trimming his bushes. Have you ever stopped to think about that? But here is where the shock comes in. For the Israelite, the blessed life was one where you lived long and had many children. That was, the best, that was their best life. That was their quote-unquote American dream. That was their Israelite dream. A lot of kids and a long life. That was a sign, an outward sign that you had been greatly blessed by God. And now Solomon uses this illustration to get their attention and it's 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 stark it's offensive let's read it verse three if a man fathers a hundred children okay so he's using hyperbole here he's like What does the blessed life look like? You've got lots of kids. Okay, this guy's got it, 100 kids. He's about to say, and you know what? He's got a long life. He lives 1,000 times two. He lives 2,000 years old. He lives to be 2,000. Look what he says. If a man fathers 100 children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, But his soul, what is his soul? You could say it's your heart. You could say it's the immaterial part of you. It's the part that you can't see. It's your spirit. It's the core of the human person. It's what makes us different from animals. But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Solomon is using this to capture their attention. He says a guy can have 100 children and could live to be 2,000 years old. He's saying this guy has the life that they all want. Every American would look in and go, that's the blessed life. Look at the cars. Look at the house. Look at the friends. Look at the vacations. Look at the Facebook profile. Their Instagram is off the chain. This guy has and gal has the best life ever. But here's the hook. His soul is not satisfied with life's good things. God's gave him all the gifts, but hasn't gave him the most important gift. 
the ability to enjoy the life he's been given. As Solomon says, a stillborn child is better off than he. Why? Verse 4, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness, its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. A stillborn child is better off than the man or woman who pursues wealth as their meaning, as their core, as what's driving them. Why? Because this man never finds rest for his soul, or woman never finds rest for their soul, but the stillborn child who never sees the light of day finds eternal rest. Now listen, it's not just that money can't buy joy. We've heard that. Money can't buy happiness, right? But it can buy me a truck. That sounds pretty good, right? It's not just that money can't buy joy. Hear me. It's that God has made sure of it. God has rigged the system. Listen, the Bible teaches us that whatever has our love, our trust, and our obedience, that thing, no matter what it is, is our God. Not what we say, not what we read, not what we think. What has our love? What has our trust? What has our obedience? What do we obey? That thing is our God. Jesus says in Luke 16, no one can serve both God and money. Now, who loves, what, what is a lover of money? Lovers of money are those who are constantly imagining new ways to make money. Those who are constantly imagining new ways to spend money. That's one of the depressing things about getting a raise is you've been dreaming for six months of how you're already going to spend that raise. So as soon as you get it, the next day it's gone. It's gone, right? It was the new house, it was the new car, it was the new wardrobe, it was the vacation. It's already gone. Now, that's lovers of money. Trusters of money are those who think that once they have a certain amount of money, they will finally be secure and safe. These are the ones that they just have to keep adding zeros to their nest egg, their bank account, their 401k. They feel secure and safe. Those big numbers make them feel safe. The world can't get to me. That is trusting in your money for your security. And the servant of money, that's literally a person who is a slave to their money. See, when we look to money for our significance and our security, we have to have them. In order to live, in order to have a good life, we have to pursue them. We have to keep them. We have to spend it. So we give ourselves over to money and we end up literally worshiping it. We need to read stuff like this 
because I don't know when it's happened, but in the past 50 years or so, the church has become a place where they condemn licentious sins like sleeping around, homosexuality, uh, pornography, all of these licentious sins, the church condemns them, but somehow it has become a safe place for people who worship wealth and money. This is a place where you're meant to come into contact with the real God, and he is meant to laugh at the God of money. Ridicule the God of money. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Listen, where moth and rust destroy, where turns in the economy take it away, where one bad investment is all vanishes, moth and rust, listen, or where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor, no moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen, for where your treasure is, where your money is going, that's where your heart's at. What's heart? Your soul. That's where your soul's at. That's what you're worshiping. I love it. Martin Luther, he says, what kind, when he's speaking about money and he's speaking about this text, what sort of God is it that's not even capable of defending himself against moths and rust? See, that's where God ridicules money. God is eternal. Money's here today. Money's gone tomorrow, right? You make one mistake, it vanishes. Moths and rust and nothing, nothing can stop God. Wealth is a false God. See, God has rigged the system. If you worship money, if that's what you love, if that's what you really trust in, if that's what you ultimately obey, you will never be satisfied. And you will never be able to enjoy the life that you've been given. Jesus says, if you live for money, you will become a slave to it. Or you can let God become your God. You move him to the center of your life, the center of your schedule, the center of your bank account. And God will knock money off the throne of your heart. If your identity and security is in God, money can't control you through worry or desire. And that's exactly what Solomon's trying to tell us here with this third and final point, the culmination of everything he's trying to teach us. And that's in verses 18 through 20. Five, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Look, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. Whoa, 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 let's just stop and just take a second. Solomon, what I have seen to be what? Come on, let's just, let's just, let's just clap for a second here. 
Huh? Huh? Solomon, hold on, Solomon. The guy whose vanity is stuck on repeat in this guy's mind. And finally, he sees something good, right? We need to just take a second and enjoy that because it don't last long, all right? Verse 18. Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting. I mean, it's right. It works together. Is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one's toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, these gifts God has given him. For this is his lot. We don't use that phrase very often. It's an important phrase. This is his lot. That means this is what has been given to him by God. What is our lot? Our lot is our life, our circumstances, our culture, our family, our heritage, our talents and abilities. It's our DNA, right? It's our wealth and possession. God says, I give to everyone their lot. Okay? First gift. I give it all to everyone. Whatever it is they have, I've given it to them. He's given us the sun. He's given us the rain. He's given us our talents and our abilities. He's given us our culture. This is his common grace to all. Listen, and it's not fair. Can we just say that? It's not fair. You're here and not in, you know, some place in the desert somewhere, right? God gives some to, a little to some, and he gives a lot to others. It's not fair. It's his common grace. It's all a gift. Keep reading. For this is his lot. Do you know what your lot is? It's what you've got. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given, look, wealth, possessions, oh, and power to enjoy them. And to, look, accept his lot. And, look, rejoice in his toil. This is a response to what you've already been given. Everyone is given gift A, your lot. Gift B is some kind of special response to your lot. Keep reading. And to accept his lot and look, rejoice in his toil. Thank God I got a job. Thank God I can work. This is, look, the gift of God. It's a grace to us. Verse 20, here's the key. For we, he, us, all of us who are working, living this life, he will not much remember the days of his life. That's what he's saying is, it's all tough, it's all toil, it's all difficult because of the curse. But God gives a special gift to some that they're not even going to really think about how difficult it is all the time because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Two gifts, your lot and whatever this thing is. Your lot has very little impact on whether you enjoy the life you've been given or not. Your lot has little to do with your actual happiness. Rich people can be miserable and poor slaves can be happy and they can enjoy their lives even though they're in an awful situation. 
I've been to Kenya and seen people with no clean water, with diseases in their body because of their lack of clean water, and yet they're thoroughly happy people who can rejoice in the Lord. And we've all seen people who have everything the world has to offer, and they're miserable. So what's the key? The key to a happy life is the second gift God gives. Solomon says it simply, God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This gift enables us to accept and enjoy our lot. This gives us the ability and the power to enjoy the life we've been given. Paul talks about it as the secret of contentment. This is a gift of grace. Listen, it only comes to those who stop striving after the first gift. Those who stop pursuing wealth, they stop pursuing wealth and they begin to pursue God through Jesus. I've used this illustration before, but all of us are given the first gift. Our life is given to us like a can of peaches. Everyone gets a can. Some get billions of cans. But what good is a can of peaches if you don't have a can opener? You can look at it. You can gnaw on it. You can shake it. You can dream about it. You can lick the can till the cows come home. But what good is the can without a can, without a can opener? Listen, here's the reality. Solomon's pointing forward to the can opener. And the can opener is the person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus enables us to enjoy our life. No matter what, no matter if that means digging into one little can, one of those baby cans of peaches, right? Or if it means having a million. He gives us the ability to enjoy what we've already been given. Jesus is the key to enjoying the life we've been given. Now, how is Jesus the key? What does that look like? As one friend recently told me, I'm lonely. I need a real person to be with me. How can Jesus really help me? Well, think about this. What is driving you? to pursue wealth. We often speak about being driven in individuals. We're proud of the fact that we work way more than those Brits and all those other countries that like take two days off a week, right? What's driving that? What's going on under, listen, what's going on under the surface in your heart, in your soul, in your instincts, in your inclinations? What are you really pursuing very few of us are really pursuing wealth. We just want to get the money and just run it through our hands. What's really going on? Is it success? Well, ask yourself, success in whose eyes? Who are you trying to impress? Whose approval are you trying to win? Is it your parents, your dad? It was never good enough? Is it the coach from high school? Is it the person who said you're never going to be anything? 
Is it your boss? Is it you? Is it you? Just trying to win the approval of myself. I want to be this type of person. Now think, whoever it is, think about it. Who are you, what's driving your success? Who are you trying to impress? Now I want you to think about that person in the presence of God. The God who's a consuming fire. The God who spoke galaxies into existence. The God who upholds the world now with his commands. The one who the book of Revelation says, this is what it says of Jesus. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. Jesus Christ contains so much glory that the earth hides its face. Runs from him. Whoever it is that you're trying to win the approval of is nothing, absolutely nothing in comparison to the eternal Jesus Christ. Why are you working so hard trying to win the approval of that person and barely thinking about what the one on the great white throne thinks of you? Jesus is great, but I need a real person. That real person is going to be real dust in 70 years. Jesus will still be on the throne eternally. What does King Jesus think of you? Or maybe that's the problem. Maybe you think it's him who's driving you. Maybe you think it's him who's pushing you. Maybe you think it's him who's saying more, more success, more, more, be better, be better. Maybe you think he's the one who's always disappointed in you and won't allow you to take a break and enjoy the life you've been given. I'm sorry if that's you. Listen, that's a false gospel. That's a false view of Jesus and a false view of God. And you maybe pick that up inside the church, but it's a lie, it's a heresy. It's some kind of Christianized form of Buddhism. See, listen, Buddha, his last words on this earth were this, strive without ceasing. Work harder, do more, be better. That's Buddhism. That's the mantra of Buddhism. Jesus' last words were, it is finished. That's our mantra. That's the church's mantra. That's the gospel. Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be made right with God. Jesus lived the perfect life. We don't. Jesus died the death that we deserve for our disobedience. He paid our punishment. He freed us from sin. Jesus did all of this for us. 
He was raised to new life, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, listen, where he sits in power. And it's from there that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to bring all of salvation's riches to our very souls. And if you say, what's Jesus got to do? I need a real person. You don't know Jesus. What are the riches of Christ? I want real wealth and real power and real authority. You don't know Christ. There is, some of us know this in our head, identity in Christ, don't worship, don't worship money, worship God. This is a, a reality. There is a power to be had here that you are in Christ. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ receiving a new identity from him from which you live out of new reality. Money doesn't have the hold on me anymore because I'm living out of my new identity in Christ. If you still can't write a big check, you're either not in Christ or you don't understand the gospel. You're not in it. You're not getting power from it. You're tiptoeing your toe in the water. That would be really nice if somebody, if you could have your identity in Christ and not in money. That'd be really nice. I think, I've read books about that. Justin's talked about that. That'd be really nice. You're tipping your toe in the water. You haven't jumped in. The Holy Spirit raided the pantries of heaven to fill our souls with real riches. The riches of Christ, forgiveness. I can now know God. I don't have this gaping hole in my soul that I'm trying to fill with all the things of the world because God himself is my portion. God himself is my friend. God himself is my God. God himself is my riches. I don't need to win the approval of anyone because Jesus Christ, the eternal one, has won God's approval for me, and now he loves me. He sings over me, the scriptures say. This is a reality that can be had right now in the present, not just in the future, someday in the great by and by. Do you know who lives in you? Do you know these? Have you tasted the bread that Jesus gives? Have you seen the wealth that he provides? See, only a fascination with the riches of Christ that the Holy Spirit, Spirit has put in you can drive out of my heart the desire to pursue earthly wealth as an end in itself. Solomon is showing us here that we pursue wealth because wealth is occupying our heart. We are worshiping money or something money gives us in our heart but the love of God shown to us in the gospel can so, quote, occupy, oh, that word, occupy our heart. God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart, in his soul. There's an inner power. I eat because I'm hungry. Well, what if I don't get hungry? What if God could keep my heart occupied so I don't have to pursue and chase wealth? That's the promise of the gospel. That's what he offers us. In the gospels, a man named Zacchaeus comes to faith in Jesus. He was a man who worshiped money. But after meeting Jesus, Jesus dethroned money in his heart. You know how Zacchaeus responded? 
Luke chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay him back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Whoa! Settle down now! People might get it in their mind that that's a form of worship. Whoa! I said 10%. You're going, that's ridiculous. That's not responsible, actually. What about your children? What about their college fund? Big boy, give me 10%. You go keep the other one. It's not what Jesus said. Jesus said today. You know what he's saying? That's an appropriate act of worship. That's a response to a man who's been in the presence of God. Money means nothing to me anymore. Jesus Christ is my everything. Half of everything. What Solomon says you can work all your life and lose it in a moment. This guy worked all his life, saw Jesus, gave it in a moment. That's an appropriate act of worship. Jesus said to him, today, salvation. Salvation, not just you're going to go to heaven when you die. Salvation, I'll be in you. Spirit will be in you. You'll know God. You'll know the Father. The joy will occupy your heart. Today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Money is a joke, God. Can't even defend itself against downturns in the economy. And yet you put your love in it, and you put your trust in it, and you put your hope in it, and you obey it, and you serve it. Can we get a glimpse of Jesus? Can we get a glimpse of Jesus? Can we see what he's done for us in the gospel? He wants to occupy your heart this morning. And listen, repentance isn't just, this is repentance. We see Zacchaeus repent. It's not, oh yeah, okay. All right, I'm gonna believe in my heart and okay. Whew, feel better about that. No, repentance looks like action. Repentance looks like if money is your God, you give that God away. That's what you do. John Piper says, God gives us money so that we can prove to ourselves and prove to others that money is not our God by giving it away. That's how we prove it. That's how we prove we don't serve money. We give it away. We give it back to God's mission. We give it back to God's kingdom. We support work in Africa. We support church planting and adopting children. We give it away. We all know on the day that we stand before Christ, our wealth, our money doesn't come with us. But Jesus does. Jesus does. For he's, as we, before we take the Lord's Supper, some of you, listen, if you're not a Christian, this message was 100% for Christians. We don't want your money. We don't take up an offering around here. We don't want your money. That's not why we're here. This message was for Christians. 
This, was me- this message was for people who are in the house of God and yet they worship a false God of money. And there's plenty of us in here. And for some of us, if you're going to listen to Jesus, you're going to respond by repenting of your sin and by, be- and by making a commitment to, to begin to give back to the work of God. To begin consistently, sacrificially giving of your finances to the church. For some of us who giving is just a box, oh yeah, it's a 10% check. No, 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 no. There's no 10% check in the New Testament. We're called to give sacrificially, not 10%. Nowhere in the New Testament to say 10%. We're called to give sacrificially to further God's work in the world. And that means, guys, we can't chase success. We can't worship wealth because we're giving a large portion of it away to God and it's going on into eternity and we're storing up riches in heaven. So listen, this morning I want all of us to search our hearts before we come to the table. Are we cheating God? Are we worshiping God by giving freely, joyfully, sacrificially? Are we? Or are we in the church worshiping another God? Father, you alone know the hearts of your people. I know my own heart is pulled away by the desire of success and the desire of riches and the desire of wealth. And I need your Holy Spirit to keep me, to help me see Jesus as better than all riches. I'm really seeing that. Giving money away is no problem at all. You are the God who dies for us. You are the God who pursues us. You're the God who keeps us occupied with joy in our heart. That's a real reality we can have and enjoy today. I pray that you would grant your people as they repent and put their trust in you, you would grant us this third gift, the ability to enjoy you and enjoy the life you've given us. Would you give that to us? Father, I know that your answer is yes for those who are truly repentant. We come to this table this morning and we're reminded we're not giving first. When we give, we're not giving first. We're giving because you gave. We come and we bring our open hands to you and we receive your body and your blood. You didn't tithe your body or tithe your blood, you shed it all. You gave it all for us. Everything else we give back to you is going to be a fraction compared to what you have already given us. You've given us our lot and you've given us your son. You've given us our salvation. Let us eat this, drink this this morning in worship of the one who gave it all for us. We thank you pray that we would eat it in a repentant way, honoring your body and your blood and proclaiming your death until the day that you come again.
In Jesus' name I pray, amen.